Bulimia sucks, but you don't, and here's why. The Bulimia Sucks podcast with Kate Hudson Hall will teach you how to begin breaking through the multitude of thoughts, feelings, triggers, and urges to empower yourself to change your painful behaviors completely. You will hear proven strategies and solutions to help you in your recovery, including real interviews with real people. Kate has just released a new best-selling book called Anxiety Hacks with proven techniques, tools, and tips to calm this. Check it out now on Amazon. And now... Another episode of Bulimia Sucks, the podcast. Hello and welcome to Bulimia Sucks. I'm your host, Kate Hudson-Hall, and thank you so much for listening. Now, this is a platform to for people to share relatable and uplifting and inspiring conversations based on an eating disorder. And episodes include talking with professionals who work with people with eating disorders and also to specific people that maybe are struggling right now with an eating disorder. So there's a multitude of different people that we speak to. So now as a therapist, I've created a free Bulimia Sucks course to help you get started on your recovery pathway if you're interested. Um, and it, there's lots of different helps, tips, and um, advice in the course. So if you would be interested, if you go to my website, katehudson-hall.com, where I have a sign-up form on the homepage, and then you can sign up and just check in there and see what you think. The other thing that I have been working on is my Bulimia Sucks coloring book and a number of different other coloring books, which are out now on Amazon. So there is one for bulimia, one for anorexia. There's a binge eating one and also a anxiety stress relieving book. So they are fantastic and they can chain in on there's a beautiful mandala and then there's an inspiring quote on the man on the mandala and then on the opposite page is a question or questions about the quote that you can think about and learn and they're they're questions to help you to think about how you could take yourself forward in your recovery so check them out if you go to amazon and put my name in you'll be able to see them there now fabulous guest today is Ashley McCann. Now, Ashley is a trauma and eating disorder specialist, as well as a yoga therapist, and she lives in the United States. She offers individuals and groups worldwide support through her programs and various different offerings, from personalized retreats to group coaching and courses online with many different free resources. Her aim is to help bring about change in the way that her clients feel in relation to food, their bodies, and most importantly, in their relationship with themselves. Ashley guides her clients forward through mindfulness, yoga, and a variety of different therapies, such as eye movement desensitization reprocessing, or also known as EMDR, and hypnotherapy to help them move towards gaining new understandings that will assist them to move through life with more ease. Oh, Ashley. Oh, thank you so much for joining us. 
Thank you for having me, Kate. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Yeah, me too. Me too. So now let's begin um, with what drew you towards training to become a, a therapist? From a relatively young age, I realized that I wanted to be a therapist, though I can say first, I thought I wanted to be a doctor until one day I saw blood and almost passed out. So that took that <laughs> off the table. That'll do it. And, you know, I was, uh, I was always really intrigued by people and the way things worked <laughs> in different families and the similarities between us and the differences um, really, really just it was something that I was always kind of gathering information on. Yeah. I remember from a very young age noticing the differences between my family and my best friend's family, the way that her parents interacted versus the way mine interacted. And then getting into high school and taking some advanced psychology classes, um, I was really hooked, you know, reading about the way that our mind works and the way that our mood and our mental state, the way our thoughts operate and how they affect our emotion and our actions it's just been something that I've been paying attention to for a really long time. And it was around the same time that I was taking that class in high school that I first watched one of my friends uh, succumb to anorexia in a way that made no sense to me, but I wanted so badly to understand why. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and this is something that became kind of a theme in life as I was moving forward. I would have someone who would have so many similarities to me, be so close to me. And then an eating disorder would come in and I would watch them deteriorate in one way or another, whether anorexia or bulimia. And, um, you know, back then, I don't think I would have recognized the other eating disorders, but I'm sure they were present all around me. Because, you know, I wasn't that different than my friends in that I struggled with body image. I struggled with my self-image, the view of myself and my relationship to myself. And uh, definitely went through phases of restrictive eating and overeating and um, eating to cope, especially in moments of sadness. I learned quickly what foods were going to be paired with different emotions for me. Right. So... So that was good, though, that you that you were aware of that and you could actually see that pattern developing. Yeah. Yeah, I could see it. And then, you know, I think I was. I was just really bent my whole life on understanding why it could happen, that it could become so severe that it could change someone and change their life because I was watching it happen around me. And so. Yeah. So, you know, I began by, you know, writing that research paper in high school and never really looked back uh, right into college, into psychology. And then from there into my master's program, where I looked at the list of possible practicums and internships, and there was nothing related to eating disorders. So I pounded the pavement until I found someone who would take me at an eating disorder center. Oh, did you? And uh, yeah, and uh, started working at an eating disorder center my first year in my graduate program stayed through the second and then on into my career and that was it for me I um it was challenging and my peers were so afraid of eating disorders and I honestly was too it's um yeah it's really intimidating I think as a student and you know it's really vulnerable as a friend of someone suffering but I didn't want it to be 
And so it was just this challenge that I decided I was going to take and I stuck with it. Incredible. And how long have you been working as an eating disorder specialist now? Well, I graduated in 2007. So my practicum before that, an internship and, you know, on into licensure. So, yeah, since around then. Wow. Amazing. It's been a good handful of years. Yeah. And so what specific therapies do you use to help your eating disorders clients? You know, the one thing that mm, I wish I had when I was first out of my training was a better understanding of trauma, because now that's what so much of my work focuses on. Um, In my early days, I did a lot of work with cognitive behavioral therapy. I learned a lot about dialectical behavior therapy um, and then quickly into yoga therapy and incorporating all of those in the different programs that I worked in at the different levels of care, whether residential or partial hospital or individualized outpatient we call IOP. Um, But it was when I was working one-on-one with people that I found there was something missing. So for years, I watched these patterns of people coming through these treatment programs and some of them coming through repeatedly. And the thing that they had in common is that they had had traumas, you know, traumas large and small. And I don't mean to quantify or qualify, but I think it's important for people to consider that whether they think their trauma was significant enough, Mm. trauma is trauma and it's relative. So the worst, most difficult or painful thing that has happened to us is just that is the worst, most difficult, painful thing that has happened to us. And it can change us and the way that we feel in our lives and in our bodies. And so I was seeing this correlation that, you know, seemed undeniable. But if you look back, there wasn't really research back then showing a correlation between trauma and eating disorders. And so we were looking at um, more like behavioral treatment, changing behavior, right? Changing the way we think to try to change the way we feel and then the way that we behave. And so that was what early on I was using. But as I moved through my training, I finally started to see trauma healing modalities come through in my trainings. And so first I became trained in hypnotherapy and this beautiful form of hypnotherapy that was targeted directly at treating trauma. And then years later learned about EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing. It's a mouthful, don't worry. Just EMDR is enough and you can Google that and learn a lot more about it. But that um, using those forms of therapy did this magical thing of helping people get out from underneath the self-limiting beliefs that were fueling the eating disorder, that were keeping people from believing that change was truly possible, uh, that would debilitate them every time they started to make progress. It's like those beliefs would get so loud, they would relapse again. Yeah, yeah. And I love this because you talk about this in your book. You know, you have a whole section in your book, I think it was chapter five, that you talk about the concept of reprogramming. Yeah. Is that something that you did in your process of healing? Uh, no, I didn't. Or that you learned as a therapist? Yeah, no. Yeah. Because when I was recovering from my eating disorder, that, that was in the 1800s. <laughs> so it was, <laughs> it was a long time ago. <laughs> so there was really hardly any help whatsoever. It wasn't there, right? Yeah. Oh, it wasn't there. Yeah. And um, that's what I'm, you know, I'm trying to shout from the mountaintops that, 
yes, you can make change behaviorally and understanding your state of mind, changing your thoughts, using cognitive behavioral strategies, um, learning dialectical behavior skills to cope and using mindfulness practices to get out of your thoughts is one absolutely, or maybe many absolutely powerful to move forward. But if you're feeling like you are stuck and then you are constantly coming back to the same patterns and behaviors that you make sense. You still, you make sense. That does not mean that you are a failure or you are broken or that it's not possible for you. You know, there's this other piece of this that not only do we have these self-limiting beliefs that can undermine us, they are like neural super highways in our brain. So the thing to understand, and I think you speak about this in the book as well, is that we often think that we have to have willpower to change, right? That was one of the concepts that you shared. Absolutely. And I was so glad to hear someone talking about this because Absolutely. I struggled with this in my own life. I always felt like I was a person who could do this or could not do this, very black and white. And it, it took me a long time to recognize that in my own thinking. You know, am I someone who uh, can wake up early? Am I someone who can exercise regularly? Like the things that I just believed weren't me or that I lacked the willpower to do, even though I wanted to do them. Yeah. Right? And that's how and people so, automatically think, isn't it? Oh, I haven't got the willpower. Yes. I can't achieve that because I haven't got yes. the willpower. And then we immediately also, if you look, if you follow that thought, we feel immediately like, oh, that gut punch feeling of less than, not good enough right? Um, We are other, we are not like the people who do the things that we believe would, you know, make us feel better or be healthier, happier people. And so um, I absolutely relate to this. But what's happening in our brain is that if we have held a self limiting belief, or if we were repeated a statement of a belief about ourselves enough times, we are building neural pathways in our brain, and they are getting stronger and stronger. Now, The beautiful thing about the reprogramming you speak about, and in EMDR, we call this reprocessing. Sometimes you can also build um, neural pathways through a a process similar to reprogramming we call resourcing, which is um, rather than going back into our traumas, we're just building on that visualization that you talked about of ourselves being able to do it differently. and And it feels great too. It's really helpful. Our brain, as we repeat something, strengthens a neural pathway. So if I, and this was me when I was younger, if I am sad and I eat ice cream, I'm sad and I eat ice cream, those two things pair, pair, pair. I am strengthening a neural pathway in my brain for when I feel sad, now my brain automatically sends a message to my body, go eat ice cream. To make me feel better. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. It's not that in every one of those moments, I'm having a calculated, well thought plan of eating ice cream. I'll find myself at the freezer with a spoon in my hand, right? Yeah. So our brain fires for the things that we have wired and it does so automatically. It is not about our will or even our thought or choice in a moment. It's what we're automated to do. And now what's even more powerful is what happens under stress. So all of our higher knowledge, the things that we have newly learned, our new healthy coping strategies, our our higher knowing, I know better, that comes from here. This part of our brain turns off when stress is turned on. And we are operating from a different part of our brain, which is where only our habituated pattern behaviors live. So in moments of high stress, we actually cannot access our higher learning. 
our higher knowing. And so we are going right into what we have repeated many times before. And people don't know that about their brain. And so then they feel shame and more shame and shame and more shame for what is actually a very natural process. Um, And so there's there's so much that I, I hope for people to understand. And I think the one thing that if I could tell anyone who is struggling with any any patterns, whether it's a diagnosable eating disorder or not, you make sense. Change is possible. Believing that it is possible and understanding that it is, is the most important thing. And if nothing else, I just hope that that leads people to find someone who can help them look at their patterns and understand those beliefs that might be underlying it and understand how they've been habituated so that we can then start to do the new thing of growing the new neural pathway, replacing that belief weakening what was once repeated over and over and over again by doing it differently slowly over time. Because the other thing that I think comes with that belief that we have to have willpower is that we should not be doing any of the things we put in the bad box at all. And we don't give ourselves time to incrementally change. And change has to be incremental because we have to slowly strengthen and habituate the new thing while we're also slowly weakening the old. And if we can give ourselves a little bit of bandwidth, a little bit of compassion and a little bit more time, we have so much more success. Wow. How Absolutely. long did it take you, would you say? What would you so say? I was, how long I was it thinking took about you? that. And actually when I was right towards the end of my um, therapy, I did have hypnotherapy and that's kind of what, guided me towards becoming a hypnotherapist um but recovery took me a number of years many years um yeah yeah Yeah. and I spent four years with a psychotherapist and that was something really powerful for me yes and you said even in your story that you you changed therapists and that you would leave and then you'd realize you needed to go back. Something new would happen in life that would make these old patterns resurface because what that's actually a sign of is just, we didn't have another coping strategy that was equally as strong or powerful in the moment. Yeah. Right. And so one of the things that I, I think can be kind of helpful to understand is that the unhealthy maladaptive, whatever you want to call it, coping strategies that are eating disorders or what other behaviors you might have, you know, whether, it comes to self-harm and any other form or substance use, we gravitate to the things that are most accessible and easy and they impact us quickly. So we're not stupid. When we do those things, we're doing them because they work. They do not work in the long run. They do more harm in the long run. But the reason that people seek those fast acting strategies is for them to be fast acting, to get us out of the feelings that we don't want to be in. And often those maladaptive unhealthy patterns started when we were young at a time when we didn't have all the resources we could have now. We didn't have the options that we might have now. We didn't have the understanding, the knowledge, the knowing that we have now. And so they started to get habituated by a kid. Usually it's a kid. When you look back on where a pattern began, usually it's very young. And so that kid was just trying to be resourceful was trying to take care of themselves, often was trying to hide that anything was wrong from anyone else. And so covered it with something that people wouldn't see. And, um, 
you know, so yes, it, it takes time because it takes a lot of time to build these patterns up. It takes a lot less time to break them down. And if you have the right strategies, it can be, a, you know, expedited isn't the right word, but it, the length of time in this process, it certainly can be shortened if we're finding the things that are making the patterns repeat. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So actually, so if somebody came to you um, that had an eating disorder, um, how would you begin to work with the limiting negative beliefs? Um, and what would be kind of the mm -hmm. steps that you would, you would take them through if they say also had a, a, a you know, what's traumatic time? That, um, I love that you asked this question because, do you know, most people come to me and they don't recognize that they have the self-limiting beliefs. No, they wouldn't. I think no, that I didn't realize I had them. my whole life and I, Right. And I see this so much in my own self-reflection. I can look back and go, oh, that makes sense. I absolutely felt that way then. And this is the thing that I did because I felt that way. But in the moment, so often people walk in the door and they, they don't recognize the beliefs that are limiting them. But what they do know is why they walked in the door. Right. So they know that there's something that they're doing that they want to change. There's something that they're seeking in their life. And so we start there. Trace it back, you know. If you look at today, I'm struggling with, you know, overeating every evening. When in the morning I wake up and I want to do it differently, in the evening I find myself in the kitchen and I'm, you know, potentially binging. Well, how long have we been doing that? So we might trace it back. We might look at how do you feel about yourself in the ugliest, worst version of the story of who you are in those moments after you've done it. So we start to find where we can connect to the part of that person that has that experience. You know, this is what Jung would call like the shadow work. This is what IFS calls parts work, but we're looking for the part of the person that can connect to those painful thoughts and feelings. Um, and then I was saying, we, we would trace it back to like where that feeling or thought about yourself began. Other times in your life, you felt that way. Sometimes it's other profound experiences that this behavior in particular has repeated. And so we start to trace it back on a timeline. Um, sometimes what we do when we are doing this work is we are gathering a timeline of just the hard, painful experiences. And then we look at each of those painful experiences and we say, you know, how did you feel about yourself in that moment? You might know right. better now. Right. Mm. You might know better now, because when you look back, you can see that that wasn't your fault. But maybe when you were a little kid, it felt differently. Yeah. And so we explore from the present, looking at what is the thing that you care about changing, not that I want to change for you. And then we explore backward through time. And we find the other moments where, like you were saying, um, I think you said in the book, and I was so glad to hear you again say it that you did find evidence of the self-limiting belief, even though it's not true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it started maybe way back when we were six or eight or 12. Yeah. And because of the fact that the belief existed in our minds, if we think back to those neural pathways, as, as we have new experiences and our brain's looking at where to store that experience, it's going, when have we felt this way before? Oh, that day when we weren't good enough. Yeah. New evidence into the file. And now it's getting stronger, which means it's more likely that the next painful experience we have is going to get stored and not good enough, not good enough, not good enough. And then we can find it in these ways that, you know, it's I'm not good enough if um, someone looks at me the wrong way. 
if someone but then it, it sort of spreads doesn't it in all anywhere. sorts of different experiences yeah so yes. for me as i say in the book was the um my limiting negative belief that i was stupid that started when I was five and my brother would tell me that all the time. And then I went to school and then different little things happened when I was at school being taken out of classes for extra spelling. Um, And it started to grow that neural pathway. And I started to believe Mm -hmm. that I was stupid. And then that developed and just Mm -hmm. downhill from there, that fantastic pathway, negative pathway developed. Yeah. Yeah. And so if anyone listening is wondering what we're talking about with Uh, those self-limiting beliefs we've just said a few you know I'm not stupid I'm unintelligent I'm inept it's my fault I'm responsible I'm not enough I'm unworthy I'm unlovable I am bad I have no control Um, there's a lengthy list that we can um, explore but the most effective way of getting there is actually just sitting with the experience and your own feelings as you are remembering it and you'll find the words. Um, and yet, even as you sit there and do that, sometimes as I'm with someone doing that work, they'll be able to connect to it for a moment and then they might go, but I know, I know, I know it's not true, you know, but it's, it's that denial that it, that it has an impact on us and that it matters that can prevent us from healing it. And what so many people are doing walking through their lives right now, whether or not they have, you know, a diagnosis or not, is that they're living that kind of good enough where they still have these painful thoughts and feelings and beliefs and they just carry them forward. So I think that there is a lot for us all to take away from understanding that these things can be tripping us up in small ways, playing small, not living big, not living fully, living in doubt. Um, You know, we call them self-limiting beliefs because they do just that. They limit us. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay, so that's that's the uh, the limiting beliefs. So, how else would you help somebody to be able to sort of you know move forward or even just step on that pathway to recovery? You know, There's there are different avenues. A but... lot of dis- well, there are a lot of different steps and strategies. So, yeah. one is going to be that healing the self limiting beliefs. Another is going to be building new course. you know if you ask anyone how do you cope so many people will look at you like a deer in headlights now it is not that that person doesn't have coping skills but it's often that they just don't recognize what they do that is coping yeah you know the the break that they take to take a walk at lunch calling their best friend to vent when something goes wrong writing in their journal when they can't sleep at night reading before bed. I mean, we have so many possibilities for coping. So identifying what we're already doing and then growing and growing and growing that list. But what I like to do with people is add one new skill and practice it over and over and over until you are sure it either does or does not work for you before you add the next. So I use a lot of breathing techniques and mindfulness practices, uh, still tap into a lot of DBT and, um, just help people so that they have those replacements. You know, when you are mm-hmm. trying not to do the hard thing, even when now you might feel no better, it's still habituated. And we need to build that strength of what else do I do? You know, in DBT, we talk about opposite to emotion action. Well, 
that's a really hard thing to sit with. Doing the opposite of what you feel compelled to do is very hard. So having something that you do to ride that wave out and um, to get you there. So changing the beliefs, building new coping strategies, um, and challenging the old patterns, the fears, the goods, the bads. For so many people with eating disorders, they are just weighed down with rules that they don't even recognize are rules because it's just the way they've been living. I can do this. I can't do this. I must measure this or count this. I, this is good. This is bad. And so reintegrating to get people back into like a neutral relationship with different foods to get out of the patterns that keep us obsessed with food and thoughts about food um, and the compulsions around those behavioral patterns around foods, because so often we have, some kind of obsessive or compulsive patterning. So breaking down the actual behaviors with the coping strategies, you know, and I think that it's like remembering, helping people remember what fun is like and what they enjoy in life and where they want to put their time and energy instead. Yeah. So it's like getting people back into like living, you know, what would you do if you weren't spending all your time thinking about this? What do you want your life to look like? I often do a 10-year visualization with people because if you put their mind far enough in the future that it doesn't hit the part of them that doesn't believe it's possible. So just stretch it into the future 10 years. In 10 years, how would you like to live? Often people can connect to that. If you have to make it 20, make it 20. But in 10 years, how do you want to be living your life? What would feel good? What would a normal day look like? Yeah. Now you step it back. What's five years look like? What would need to change between now and five years for you to be living that way? What's three years look like? One year, you know? And and what we're starting to do is reconnect that person with their truest self. This is who I really am. This is the person I really am. I have believed for so long in this other version of me that I have to live my life under certain rules and do all these things to be right. I live if I actually was living in line with how I want to live, what would it look like? And so reconnecting the person back to who they really are to be in that right relationship with themselves. Yeah. I think that's the biggest part of this work. Yeah. It's most that's so powerful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that happens along the way. It's not necessarily stepwise. You know, it's like one big part of the pattern falls away, maybe just weighing yourself every day. And suddenly yeah. there's all this freedom to do the next piece of the work, but also maybe to go and enjoy dinner with a friend, you know? So it's like that becoming yourself and living your life as you wish to live is happening as you go. It's not just that that comes at the end. Yeah. It's all and it's making those small changes and steps. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. figuring out what they are, what what specifically mm-hmm. is stopping you from taking that next step forward. Yep. The laws and rules of your eating disorder yeah. <laughs> and changing those laws and rules or releasing them entirely. Yeah, releasing them. I love that. Yeah. Um, so, Ashley, so how would people, how would they find you? People can find me. You have to know how to spell my name because it's slightly unexpected. It's www.ashleymccann.com. That's A-S-H-L-E-Y-M-C-H-A-N.com. 
and there you'll find a little more information about the services that I offer, um, programs that are launching this month and on an ongoing basis. So don't fret if you see that we are beginning change your relationship with food that will run again in a couple of months. Um, private retreats, group retreats, you'll find um, you can connect with me about coaching and therapy and uh, other resources that are on there. So you do one-to-one -one, um, online therapy? I do one-to-one -one online, yep. And uh, right now my practice is full, which is why I'm trying to get into connecting with groups. And the group program that I'm about to launch involves coaching calls. So you still will get a call. Um, coaching calls, group session every week, also course content. The course content is yours forever to repeat as you wish. Um, and that's a six week program. So it's a six week. Mm -hmm. And so they could access that now if people were interested. Yes, you can sign up and we're going to begin in March. And then again, at the end of that six week program, we will restart. Okay. And when does it start, you know, in March, you know? It's the last weekend in March, Sunday, oh, I believe weekend. the 29th. Okay, good. Yes. And again, this summer, but on there you'll find um, there's a coping skills mini course that you can take for free, uh, 30 days to building a habit of journaling, which is a beautiful oh, yeah. practice for developing your own self-awareness and so much insight will come of that if you give that a try. I always recommend writing. Um, and there's some yoga tutorials there. And you'll see that library continue to grow. So just check back or Excellent. sign up for the newsletter and you'll get notifications. Oh, yes. Sign up for the newsletter. So um, the next um, program would be um, May, in May, end of May, maybe? Yes, it should be. I would have to look at a calendar, but I'm going to go with your math. So, yeah, <laughs> end of May, beginning of June. Yeah. So by the time the podcast... And with enough now. interest, with enough interest and availability, I would happily begin sooner. I, it's not because this cohort may decide to repeat, but it, it, I could start another between. So, you know, with enough interest, don't worry, we'll get you going. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So that's great. Great. Yeah. So um, lastly, is there anything else that you would like to say to, to the listeners? with regards to no, I think I just want to, yeah just to reinforce again that even if you have tried this before try it again find a, a new team find a, a new therapist begin again because every person that you meet is going to offer you something different and you may just not yet have found what it is that you need what it is that you're looking for and what you need to heal and working with someone else will often be the thing that helps us identify what we weren't seeing for ourselves as we were struggling through. Yeah. 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 Because if you could see it, then you would make, you know, if you could make a change, but quite often we can't see yeah. it ourselves. Yeah. Or perhaps you are someone who's been sitting in awareness and just feeling like a failure, but you don't need to. And, um, there's more for you. So I hope that people reach out and read your book and buy a coloring book and connect with me and we'll see what we can do to help Absolutely. move you forward. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Excellent. Thank you so much for having me. Kate. Oh, Ashley, so thank lovely. you so much for joining us. That's, you know, the information yeah, is thank just, you. you know, going to be so invaluable for people to take away, to begin to understand and okay. to come and check you out. 
I hope so. Absolutely. All right, everyone have a great day. Oh, thank Be you, well. Ashley. And thank you to everybody for listening and make sure that you um, subscribe to the podcast on Apple iTunes so you never miss an episode and let us know what you think and show some love your favorite podcast by leaving us a review on Apple podcast or tune in radio or Spotify or wherever you may listen. So thank you for listening. And I look forward to chatting with you on the next episode. Bulimia sucks, but you don't. Kate has just released a new best-selling book called Anxiety Hacks with proven techniques, tools, and tips to calmness. Check it out now on Amazon.